Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, episode number five. episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zimmerman Jr., and this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920, although we sometimes stretch into the 1930s. In this episode, I'll be talking about some of the wild claims that fans, wrestlers, and wrestling historians make about matches through the years. But first, while researching the history of the American heavyweight title, I came across the fact that before Mildred Burke was even born, there was a recognized women's uh, wrestling champion. Cora Livingston, sometimes also spelled Livingstone, was a wrestler who learned how to wrestle in the carnivals, and then she wrestled professionally from 1906 to 1925, where she was recognized as the Women's World Wrestling Champion. In 1913, she married Paul Bowser while they were both wrestlers, and then Paul Bowser would later establish himself as the promoter of Boston, Massachusetts. Cora retired to assist him with his promotion, but for those years prior to that, she was a fairly active for the day professional wrestler. So I think that she's going to be a topic of future podcasts and probably future writing projects as well. But I'm just getting into researching her career, but I know uh, 1908 in particular, she wrestled many matches. This week's show, I wanted to talk about some of the wild claims that you often hear in professional wrestling. And you can hear these claims from fans, you can hear them from wrestlers, and you can even hear them from wrestling historians. And in 2015, I wrote about a match between Stanislaus Sabisco and Alex Aberg. Both were Greco-Roman wrestling specialists. Zabisco later became a very good catch wrestler, but when he came to America in 1909 to wrestle Frank Gotch, he was a neophyte in catch wrestling and many people attribute that that's why he lost the controversial match to Gotch was because he was unfamiliar with that style of wrestling. Gotch, or Gotch, Zabisco took catch wrestlers with him when he returned to Poland for the next uh, few summers because he always returned to Poland in the summer between 1909 and 1914. And he took catch wrestlers with him back to Poland became a a fairly good catch wrestler, but he was always better at Greco-Roman wrestling. Alexander Aberg was a Greco-Roman wrestling specialist, and he would only wrestle in that style, which would prove a bit of an impediment when he came to America, because Americans had really, American professional wrestling had switched to catch wrestling in the 1890s. There were very few Greco-Roman matches anymore but as you'll see with this particular match there were still 
Greco-Roman wrestling fans, particularly in certain areas of the country. So in 1914, after trying to secure a rematch with Frank Gotch for about four years, Stanislaus Sabisco finally accepted the fact that Gotch was never going to give him a rematch. He determined to return to Poland, which was in the middle of World War I, and he was considering joining the army, which he did do. However, before he returned to Europe, he wrestled a match that would shape American wrestling for even the next year or two afterwards as people scrambled to try to replace Frank Gotch. So, Zabisco wrestled Alexander Aberg for a match that was billed for the World Heavyweight Greco-Roman Wrestling Championship. The match took place in Boston, and even though this was a specialty style in America at the time, 5,000 fans filled up the Mechanics Building in Boston to see the match, which is a great crowd. Uh, particularly for 1914, after the second Gotch-Hackenschmidt match in 1911, pro wrestling struggled to draw any sort of crowds, and 5,000 fans was not a bad house it, before that match, so it was a really good match to see a specialty style. And the men were considered pretty evenly matched, so Greco-Roman wrestling bands holds below the waist. It's an upper body uh, wrestling style. Um, judo has sort of evolved in that same direction where you can't grab the legs anymore, so there's no single leg takedowns, double leg takedowns, or anything like that. They're all upper body holds. But those matches can also be boring for the same reason. People lock up in a collar and elbow tie-up, and they can stay that way for a while. And this match was not really that different. For about the first hour, the men kind of remained in a tie-up, which the crowd started getting frustrated with because there wasn't very much action. After about an hour, Zabisco took Aberg to the mat and applied a back hold. Aberg pulled out of this hold, but he was now on his hip. So Zabisco used a cross-body hold to pin Aberg for the first fall at 1 hour, 2 minutes, and 45 seconds. This worried Aberg, who came out to start the second fall. Let me back up for a second. In these matches, normally during this time frame, particularly the legitimate contest uh, like these, there was normally a 15 to 20 minute intermission between the falls so the wrestlers could recover. When they came back from the intermission, this time Aberg, who had wrestled pretty defensively in the first fall, starts to attack and he and uh, Zabisco slipped out of multiple holds before Aberg finally got a waist hold around Zabisco and picked him up off the mat and slammed him down. He was quick enough to get a half Nelson before Zabisco could turn out of it and Aberg flipped Zabisco to his back for the second fall at 35 minutes and 25 seconds. So this is a pretty evenly matched, it, it was not uncommon in legitimate contests for one wrestler to win two straight falls, but Aberg is one of the best Greco-Roman wrestlers that ever came to America, and Zabisco is one of the best wrestlers that ever came to America, period. So this was a pretty evenly matched bout, which was one of the reasons the first fall was so boring. Zabisco was a little surprised that Aberg actually pinned him, 
So when he came out for the third fall, this time he really applied himself because prior to this match with Aberg, Zabisco had only lost one time to Gotch and he had forfeited one match that he shouldn't even have wrestled because he had been injured when he landed outside the ring on his head a few days later before he kept a match in New York. So Zabisco's almost undefeated in that first five-year run in America from 1909 to 1914. I wrote about Zabisco's run in America in Zabisco, or Gotch versus Zabisco. That's the most recent book I actually released. If you read uh, Double Crossing the Gold Dust Trio and Gotch versus Zabisco, and you might want to read Gotch versus Zabisco first because it's about his first foray into America, you will have all of Stanislaus Zabisco's career in America. So, Zabisco comes out for the third fall and scores three successive flying mares on Aberg. After the third one, Zabisco grabbed Aberg, who was on his knees, in sort of this front bear hug underneath the armpits. And then he flips uh, Aberg to the mat in 35 seconds. Aberg is furious that he was pinned so quickly. He jumps to his feet and tackles Zabisco from behind and is trying to pin him. And Zabisco looked incredulously at the referee who's trying to pull Aberg off, but Aberg is too strong for the referee. And Zabisco is just kind of looking at him like, what are you doing? A Boston police officer sees what's going on that, that's at ringside, steps into the ring and tells Aberg, let go and go back to your corner. The match is over. And Aberg lets go and follows the officer's commands. <laughs> so, you know, um, when I wrote about this match in my blog around 2015, a reader left a comment there. And I, I've had two forays into comments, and now I just have people either send me things on Facebook, Twitter, or to my email account. The, I was using a comment uh, system originally on my website, but I couldn't control the advertising you could control it a little bit, but not to the level of control I wanted to have over what showed up on my website. So after a year or so, and knowing that most websites were going to just the social media comments, I went ahead and took that off of my website. But um, a writing website that I follow and I really like called uh, Creative Pen, Joanna Penn has a contact form on her website, which I liked. And I tried to uh, put that on my own website, not necessarily the one she was using, but I just tried to add a contact page to my website. And that lasted for about six weeks because the, in the first week or two, I had all of these SEO, uh, search engine optimization experts, that wanted to optimize my website for me, who I'd never talked to or asked to contact me. And I also had a bevy of young women who I have never heard of, talked to, or uh, seen, who all of a sudden wanted to share with me their intimate pictures that we had discussed. And so because I've got a lot of mirrors in my house and I have a pretty good idea what I looked at, looked like, I figured that those were not legitimate inquiries. So I put something on the contact page that said, you know, I only want comments from readers 
or uh, professionals, other podcasts, things like that. If you're not one of these uh, inquiries, I'm not going to respond. But they kept coming, and I, I spent more time deleting stuff than handling the one or two legitimate uh, questions or contacts that came through. And so finally, I just got rid of the contact page and went back to, or the contact form. I have the contact page on my website. And just went back to having people send me stuff directly on email, which works very well. That way I tend to get everything that's supposed to come to me. But this particular uh, comment, I still had the comments up on my website. And the person who uh, commented uh, identified themselves in an, as an Estonian historian, which I think they are, because they've contacted me anytime I've wrote about Aberg or Lurich. And you have to understand, the Estonian area, in, at this time, Estonia did not exist as a distinct country. It was part of the Russian Empire. So Aberg, um, George Lurich, and George Hackenschmidt all came from the Estonian area. And they're three of the greatest wrestlers who ever lived, and a real source of pride for the Estonian uh, wrestling fans, Estonian sports uh, historians. And so the, the person reached out to me and said that they were an Estonian historian and that they knew that Aberg had been paid $10,000 to drop this match to Zabisco. And I said, well, if you have sources that can show that, I, I'd love to see it because based on everything I've researched, this was a legitimate contest. And my immediate doubts were because of the, the the large amount of money that they said that this person said that Aberg was paid, which why I doubted the story from the beginning. But you give somebody a chance to provide the sources. I think it could be the same person, but they're they're different names that I I get, so I have no idea if this is a group of people or if this is one person, but. Another time I had wrote about Aberg and Lurich died in southern Russia. Lur they both got typhoid fever. Lurich died of typhoid fever. Aberg recovered and died a few weeks later of pneumonia, though, in 1921. They both died in southern Russia, trying to get out of Russia to escape the Russian Civil War. A person from this group or the same person said, no, that's not correct. They were murdered by the Bolsheviks trying to escape Russia. Well, it's possible the Russian Civil War was going on at the time, but all the official sources and newspaper accounts that I found say that they died in southern Russia trying to escape from typhoid fever and pneumonia. So I said, please show me these sources. You know, they may have access to sources. I'm sure they do have access to sources we don't have in America, please show me this and I will change that as well. Because if someone produces the sources and they're trustworthy sources, you should fix your history. That That's never come forward either. So there, there was never any sources put forward to verify the $10,000. And this is why I doubt it. I don't doubt that that could have been said. Alex Aberg may have told people when he went back to Russia that he was paid $10,000 to lose that match to Stanislaw Sabisco in 1914. And you can't really fault somebody for taking that amount of money to lose a match. 
but it would be horrible business if somebody had actually paid him that to lose a match. So first off, let's look at what the gate was. This was a crowd of 5,000 people. I know from doing research in New York, Boston, uh, Chicago around this time, normally the top tickets in any of those big cities were for $2, the, the top tickets. And then you had either one or two more tiers. Sometimes it went down to a dollar, and then it went down to 50 cents. Other times it just went from $2 to 50 cents. So the following year when they did the New York International Wrestling Tournament in New York, tickets were $2 for up close to the stage, and then farther back they were 50 cents. There was only two tiers. But sometimes there was three tiers during this time frame. So if we gave the benefit of just, okay, everybody paid, which they did. So let me state right now, the gate for this card wasn't $10,000. But if everybody paid the high-end ticket price of $2 for 5,000 fans, and that's no comps, that's no freebies given, the, the entire gate would have been $10,000. So the promoter, Tui, would have been paying out his entire gate to Aberg to lose the match. Okay, that makes no business sense at all. The other big income stream that wrestlers and promoters had available to them, and one of the things that was so controversial when people started finding out that a lot of the matches were worked after 1915, was gambling was still a significant source of revenue for the wrestlers and the promoters. However, you're talking about gambling on a specialty style that had not been popular in the United States for about 20 years. How much gambling do you suppose this match would have generated? It would have generated some. They got 5,000 fans to come out to watch it. But would the gambling money and the ticket money be enough to offset paying one of the competitors $10,000 to lose the match? And then finally, if from a business and a financial perspective, this would be backwards. If you were going to pay anybody to lose the match, you would pay Zabisco. Zabisco had only lost one actual match, and he lost that controversially. And then he had to withdraw from another match when he shouldn't have even made that match and been there. And he's already stated that he's leaving and going back to Poland. He always went back in the summer, but he's not planning to come back because he's not going to get the match with Gotch. Aberg had just come to America to try to tempt Gotch into a wrestling match, and he was staying. He would be the top star in the New York International Wrestling Tournaments, which was actually two tournaments. It was a spring version and a fall version. But he was going to be the star of those tournaments. So you're going to have the guy that just got here and people don't know and might be intrigued by lose to the established wrestler that's leaving. From a business perspective, that's completely backwards. You wouldn't book it that way. And it's also preposterous that anybody's going to pay anybody $10,000. If someone had claimed that, hey, he paid me $1,000 to lose it, that might be believable. But if you just look at what the gate could have been for it, what the uh, gambling could have been for it, it makes no sense from a business or a financial perspective. 
So I still stand by. This was a contest. Zabisco beat Aberg, and Aberg could have went back to Estonia, Russia at some point, and said that he was paid to lose, but he would be contradicting his sworn testimony because in 1917, before he returns to Russia, Aberg sues Jack Curley because Curley, the New York wrestling promoter and someone who was associated with a lot of dirty tricks over the years, had had a falling out with Aberg because when uh, the wrestling fans didn't accept Aberg as the world heavyweight champion as a replacement for Frank Gotch after he won the 1915 tournaments. And you'll read in the Fall Guys that Ed Strangler Lewis actually won the Fall Tournament. And not a, that is not true. Aberg won both versions of the tournament because both versions of those tournaments we were com, uh, contested in Greco-Roman wrestling. And he beat Ed Strangler Lewis just like he beat everybody else in Greco-Roman wrestling. Ed Strangler Lewis was the first one to beat the Mass Marvel. And because they introduced catch wrestling into the tournament later, he also beat Lodic Zabisco, who was the runner-up in catch wrestling. But Alex Aberg refused to wrestle Lewis in a catch wrestling match. And the championship matches in this tournament were all contested in Greco-Roman. And Aberg was the, the winner of that. However, that same summer, Joe Stecker... Um, well, actually... Farmer Burns was trying to set up a wrestling match between Joe Stecker, who had just won the American Heavyweight Championship from Charlie Cutler, with Frank Gotch, who was sick of people challenging him, and he just wanted to retire to his farm and be left alone. Gotch agreed to come back and wrestle a match with Stecker where he was going to put Stecker over so he could get rid of all these challenges and people would leave him alone. Unfortunately, he broke his leg in the training match. And that match never came off, but the fans still accepted Stecker as the world champion. So Stecker becomes the guy that replaces Frank Gotch for wrestling fans as reporters as the world champion. So Aberg, Sam Rockman goes back to Europe. Aberg stays in the United States for one more year and wrestles for Jack Curley, who's the New York wrestling promoter. I know I kind of went around the elbow to, to get to the neck on this one, but I'm just trying to set up why him and Curly had a falling out. Curly wasn't his original promoter, and he didn't see the financial potential in Aberg in a specialty style. So he wanted Aberg to lose some matches, and Aberg refused, which led to them trying to uh, stiff him on some payoffs or something. So he ends up suing a or Curly. Alex Aberg ends up suing Jack Curly in New York. And Aberg admits under oath that when he wrestled a few matches for Curley in 1916, he did work those matches. But when he realized how much the American fans hated faking, in quotes, he would not wrestle any more worked matches after that. And he testified that all of his matches in the 1915 New York Wrestling Tournament and the match with Zabisco were legitimate contests. I will say that I do believe that he carried the Mass Marvel in their first match, and the matches with him and Lurich were probably not contests. But he testified under oath the only time he wrestled 
in work matches was 1916. So I have no doubt that this was a, a legitimate contest. Zabisco was the better wrestler, and he did make it harder for Aberg to be accepted by the wrestling fans, even after Aberg beat all those other wrestlers in 1915, because he still had the one really recognized Greco-Roman wrestler he had wrestled, Stanislaus Zabisco, had beaten him. And even though he beat Stanislaus's younger brother in 1915, people always saw Stan or Vladik is not quite as good as his older brother. So I don't believe this claim, and we'll just leave it there. So before I um, close out this week's episode, I wanted to talk about I've talked a lot about WWE. And how I think that the Raw and SmackDown are boring. The pay-per-views are better. NXT used to be a good show. Then Triple H was no longer involved in it. It's not such a good show anymore. It's just as bad as the other ones. So maybe him coming back will help. But the other day, I actually watched um, one of the YouTube shows on AEW, AEW Dark Elevation. Only because I wanted to watch Buddy Matthews, who used to be Buddy Murphy and then Murphy, in the WWE. The, the best match I've seen in several years was Buddy Murphy versus Aleister Black, who was another person I think Vince missed the boat on. That was one of the best matches I saw. I think it was early 2021, but it could have been 2020 uh, now. But it was at the uh, TLC in either 2020 or 2021. And I've always thought uh, a lot of his skill set, so I wanted to actually see. And he was in a match with his partner, Brody King. They're, they're part of the House of Black. And they went against two guys that were really, they were so small, it was kind of physically ridiculous just visually looking at it. But uh, they did what they should have done in that particular match. They squashed their opponents but there was one spot in that match that just it makes me nervous and I see people doing it in WWE I see people doing it in AEW and Buddy Murphy uh, threw one guy into the corner and the guy's just laying there with the camera on him and he doesn't look like he wants to take this but Buddy suplexes his partner into that corner on top of the guy and it always makes me so nervous when I see that spot now because I'm not a professional wrestler. When I talk about professional wrestling, I'm talking about things that I like that interest me. I'm not talking about it from an insider's perspective. Whenever I see that spot, though, I know a lot about break falls. I was in judo for six years. I was a judo coach. Uh, my son was on a trampoline. And because he knows how to fall, he didn't end up with a broken neck because he was going heads down straight into the, the mat. And because he knew how to fall, he sucked his uh, head up, but his opposite knee went to his opposite shoulder. And we found out years later, it actually uh, cracked his lower vertebrae in his back because he hit with so much force. The pro wrestlers know how to do break falls as well, but when you're going into a corner like that, and you hit those ropes, you could come off at all kind of odd angles. And I think it's just a matter of time. Because when you're doing a breakfall, you don't want to hit anything that messes with your trajectory. 
because it can screw up the way you end up taking that fall. And I've seen many experienced judoka land right on their freaking head because something happened unexpected. The person threw them in a way that they weren't expecting. And it's that's the most dangerous part of grappling is ended up landing on your head. And when I see those uh, throws like that, it always scares me. <coughs> and it seems like more and more that wrestlers are doing these kind of moves to kind of shock the fans but I don't know that it's worth the, the long-term potential injury uh, for doing that and I'm sure Buddy Matthews is as safe as you can be in those situations but I just think some of the bumps and the falls that the people are taking is unnecessary and it scares me when they start careening people into the ropes like that um, I hope that the talent influx in AEW leads to a better product. Um, I don't like what WWE has done, as most wrestling fans probably don't, over the last few years. So I'm kind of rooting for the underdog promotion. They've done some good things. They've done some things I don't understand. But I'd I'd like to see them at least become a serious competitor for WWE and maybe make them better as well. The only other thing I'll say about that Dark episode, there was... Uh, Max Caster of the Acclaim and the Gun Club and Billy Gunn and Anthony Bowen, who's hurt, all came out after that match. And I wasn't, that, the only match I was going to watch was that tag match. But there's something about the, that group. They have tremendous charisma. Max Caster's raps crack me up. Uh, in this politically correct age, I, I could see how they might get him in trouble one day. But they have something with the charisma and everything of that group the fans were really into them and um, Billy Gunn and Anthony Bowen may be the most over of that whole group so I think they've got something too and of course we know who all the big stars are Brian Danielson, CM Punk but you know let's hope AEW at least can uh, make it a fight so that's about it for this episode. You can view the show notes at kenzermanjr.com, episode number five. <coughs> Sorry, I had to cough there. Next episode, I'm going to discuss a worked title series in 1906 involving Frank Gotch and one of the most underrated wrestlers from this era we're discussing, Fred Beal. That episode will be released on Monday, July 24th. Remember, right now we're on a every-other-week schedule as I continue to evaluate how the podcast is going and whether I should go back to weekly or, or stay with this frequency. Ken Zimmerman Jr. is the place to check out the show notes for today's episodes. You can also see what I'm working on currently and a list of books I've written if you are interested in digging deeper into this era of professional wrestling. Thank you for listening today. I would also be grateful if you would rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. That helps tremendously with keeping the podcast visible so people who have never heard of it can discover it. If you've already done this, thank you so much. If you would like to comment on this episode or ask a question, please go to KenZimmerMJr.com, find the contact page at the top of the navigation, and drop me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care everybody. Bye-bye.